Hi, you're listening to Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. And today, a message called The Grace of God Purifies, Part 1. There's quite a laundry list of things in this world we need to be purified from, isn't there? We're going to see what some of those are and the good news behind why Jesus has purification in mind for His church. Let's listen now to this final message in the series called Grace, the Wellspring of All Godliness. But let's look at Titus chapter 2. Let's look at verses 11 through 14. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, that is, Jesus, in the whole saving event of his life, death, burial, and resurrection. God's grace is not a substance. It is a person. And so the grace of God has appeared, that is, Jesus, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, training us to be waiting for our blessed hope, that is, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. In chapter 2, Paul is seeking to counter the harmful effects of false teachers that had come into the churches in Crete. These were young church plants they had come in with this licentious lifestyle and licentious gospel and saying that uh, it doesn't really matter how you live. And so they were separating their belief from their behavior, their, from their theology from their lifestyle. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says they profess to know God. They profess to be Christians. But he says in chapter 1, verse 16, their lifestyle, their whole lifestyle says that's not true. The false teachers were coming in and they didn't feel any compulsion to exhort these young Cretan Christians to renounce ungodly ethical Cretan norms. And so we saw that. I mean, they had all sorts of ungodliness going on in Crete. And that ungodly Cretan culture was beginning to come into the church. And the church was starting to look just like the unsaved Cretan world. And these false teachers, they didn't feel any compulsion whatsoever to tell the believers in the Cretan churches, you can't live like this. And so unlike the false teachers, Paul comes in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, and he issues to believers in the church a series of ethical instructions according to their age, gender, and their legal social status, how a Christian is to conduct themselves in the church and in the world. And so rather than following these culturally determined vices of Cretan culture, believers, Paul says, are to be exhorted in the church to pursue and live these gospel grace-instructed virtues. Exhorting believers in the church to live a godly life in an ungodly culture is a vital pastoral task. It is Paul's strategy given to Titus and now given to pastors in the church to set a church in right order. Believers must be exhorted to pursue virtuous Christian living, a life of godliness. 
They have to do this so that they're zealous, so that they're enthusiastic, eager to do good works, which is verses 2 through 10 of chapter 2. And so the vital point to note about this moral, ethical duty that believers have to live a godly life, Paul grounds all of his ethical instructions in the gospel of grace. Because the gospel of grace is the only place that will give you the proper motivation to want to be a godly person. And what Paul shows us is that the gospel is more than just good advice or a set of ethical ideals that are powerless against ungodliness and worldly passions. That's not the gospel. The gospel, Paul shows us, is powerful over ungodliness and worldly passions. That is the desires of our flesh. It succeeds over all of his competitors to bring about moral reformation in a person's life. The very purpose of the gospel is to redeem and to purify a people who are zealous for good works. The gospel teaches this over and over and over And so what Paul understands is this, is if a person who claims to be a Christian abuses the gospel for license to live a sinful lifestyle, Paul says you have never understood the purpose and effects of the saving work of Christ in your life. Far from being permission or a license to have a self-indulgent, ungodly life, He shows us that the gospel is a fountain of grace that leads to godliness in daily living. And so any teaching that separates or removes obedience from the purpose of Christ's saving work in the gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, is to be utterly silenced in the church. It's not to be given a voice in the church because it's not a true gospel. Paul shows you that there's no salvation without sanctification, Because sanctification is salvation. That is a part of salvation. Christ's salvation, the whole purpose, is to guide believers, teach them the education of grace, to guide them in a whole new way of life that is totally different from the present age in which they live. And so Paul emphasizes this need for good works in a believer's life, this virtue, verses 2 through 10, And it receives no greater emphasis than in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And then as we'll see in chapter 3, verses 3 to 8. So Paul is not teaching the abuse of grace. He's teaching the purpose of grace, which is to produce godliness, good works in believers' lives. So that's the whole big context of what he's teaching. Now let's look at verses 11 through 14. And quickly we'll see what we've looked at. And then we're going to look at two more points today. In verses 11 through 14, Paul highlights for all of us four saving actions of God's grace. Four saving actions of God's grace. And these saving actions of God's grace are educating believers to renounce ungodliness and to pursue godliness in their ordinary daily life. These four actions do this. This is the purpose, the effect, or the result. And so look at verse 11. The grace of God saves. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul personifies grace as the believer's savior. God's salvation has come with power to free believers from the bondage of their sins so that they can live a godly life. Second, 
we saw in verses 12 through 13 that the grace of God educates. Paul personifies grace as the believer's teacher who is constantly teaching and guiding believers into a new way of living, which is godliness rather than ungodliness. Ungodliness simply being living like God doesn't exist. Godliness being like God does exist, a God-centered focus of life so that your life is morally and ethically good. In verses 11 through 13, Paul, as I showed you, personifies grace. He speaks about the grace and the work, the saving work of Jesus in a very general way. But look at the end of verse 13. As he's been talking about grace in a very general way, He gets very explicit and very specific. At the end of verse 13, he says, The appearing of the glory, listen, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So now he's going to get very explicitly clear on who he's been personifying for a couple verses. He introduces the person of and work of Jesus Christ as our great God and Savior at the end of verse 13. And now in verse 14, he gets very explicitly clear presenting Christ's saving work for us, both its effects and its purposes. He gives two effects of the saving work of Christ and he gives two purposes based upon those effects. And so the whole point of verse 14 is to show you that if you are unconcerned with the pursuit of daily godliness in your ordinary life, you've totally misunderstood the effects and the purposes for why Christ came to bring salvation the first time. And so let's look at this. The the third saving action of God's grace that teaches us to be a godly person is verse 14 It's simply this, the grace of God redeems. The grace of God redeems. Look at verse 14. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us. To redeem us. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in verse 13, he is the one who has given himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. And so look what Paul's doing here. In verse 11, he personifies the grace of God as our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. In verses 12 and 13, Jesus is our educator. He teaches us to live this godly life. Now in verse 14, at the beginning, he says Jesus is our Redeemer. He's our Savior. He's our educator. And now he's our Redeemer. And he gets very clear about this redemptive work of Christ. The first intended effect or result of Christ's self-giving, he gave himself, is redemption. So Paul is building his words here on several Old Testament things. So to understand verse 14, you got to go back to the Old Testament because he's pulling from the Old Testament major salvific themes that God did in the Old Testament to show you that the God of the Old Testament is Jesus. He shows you that Jesus fulfills all the meaning of scriptures in his first appearing, verse 11. The whole saving event, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Paul says that event in his life, death, burial, resurrection, that event is the whole summation of the Old Testament. 
And he does it in one verse. I wish I was the Apostle Paul. I'm not that smart to do it in one verse. So what we're going to do this morning is you're going to go back to the Old Testament a whole lot with me. So I hope you have your Bibles because you're going to be turning back. Because to understand what Paul is saying here, you've got to understand the Old Testament. Because this is where he's getting it from. The first Old Testament theme is this, is that there's a priestly theme here. The Levitical priesthood. Jesus is the whole fulfillment of the whole Levitical priesthood. Paul says, Jesus, who is our great God and Savior, gave himself. Jesus' self-giving is a priestly activity. It is an offering of a sacrifice. Where does that come from? It comes, it echoes the sacrificial imagery of the Old Covenant, where the Levitical priests, day after day after day, offered the sacrifice of animals to God in the place of sinful worshipers. These sacrifices were only a shadow of the good things to come. In other words, it was not the reality Those Old Testament animal sacrifices daily offered in the tabernacle and then temple never, ever took away anybody's sin in the Old Testament. Never. It was just a shadow. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never buy the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. That is just crystal clear. The Old Testament sacrificial system in the tabernacle and in the temple never, ever, ever took away people's sin. Never. All it did, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 5, as he's reading the Old Testament passages, he says these were only a reminder of our sins. He says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. But Paul says when Jesus appeared, instead of offering animal sacrifices, he offered himself. He gave himself. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself. He gave himself, not over and over, continually, day after day, week after week, year after year. He gave himself, Hebrews 10 One single time is a final sacrifice to redeem us from all lawlessness. One sacrifice. The full reality has come. Not the shadow, but the substance. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Priestly activity. He gave himself. That we should have such a high priest. Holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You see, unlike the, the old covenant Levitical priest, Jesus had no sin. He did not have to offer a sacrifice first for himself and then for the sins of the people. Moreover, Jesus was not like a shadow like they were. He is the substance and the reality, the fulfillment. He gave himself. And so Paul says here, Jesus is both our priest and our sacrifice in one person. 
he gave himself as our priestly representative and our perfect sacrifice before God. Do you know what these words summarize for Paul here? These words for Paul, when he says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself, that summarizes the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the atonement. This is Christ's substitutionary death on the cross for sinners. He gave himself for us. Look at the text. He gave himself for us. Paul is giving you here the idea of substitution, the innocent for the guilty. It was for us. It was in place of us. Jesus' death was a willing, self-giving sacrifice. There was nothing forced or reluctant about it. It was the very mission for why he came. He gave himself willingly in our place as a priestly sacrifice and offering to the Father on our behalf. This was the Father's saving mission from the beginning. John says in John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. That's a lot of authority, by the way. You can lay your life down and take it up again. That's a lot of power. No one takes my life from me. You hear that? No one. But I lay it down. I give myself up freely of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. It is the whole trinity working here. You remember when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, John 18? (laughs) And Judas is leading the whole Roman cohort, which was a massive amount of soldiers at that point who were trained to kill. I mean, these these were Rambos of the day. And they come up to Jesus and they said... We're looking for Jesus. And, and, and he said, who are you looking for? Jesus looks at him and said, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says two words to them. Ego, amen. I am. And you know what they did? John tells us they did. When he said, I am, they all, the whole Roman cohort and soldiers and everybody who came with them, they all fell down. Nobody took Jesus' life. And they didn't get back up till he let them. And then when they got back up, he let them take him to the cross because he was giving up his life. No man was taking his life. He was the perfect priestly offering and sacrifice for our sin. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It was a well-pleasing act to the Father on our behalf. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He gave himself up for us. Perfect priest, perfect sacrifice, perfectly fulfilling the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Covenant sacrificial system this is the heart of the gospel he is our priestly representative he is our substitute we sang it this morning from philip bliss's uh, famous hymn hallelujah what a savior maybe you didn't pick up on it when you were singing it but the second stanza says bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place 
condemned, he stood. Sealed my part in with his blood. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord with me. What a savior. This is amazing. He took upon himself the punishment we deserved. He's holy, innocent, unstained, separated, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And nonetheless, he gave himself up. He gave himself up for us, Paul says, for us. Who's us in this passage? Well, the context tells us who us is. It's the lawless and impure ones. It's those who are against God's law and those who are morally defiled before God. Go back to verses 2 through 10. Let me tell you who the us are. And Paul includes himself in this because the pastors of the church are just as evil, just as sinful as everybody else in the congregation. So he includes himself. Who is us? Listen carefully. This comes from chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. The us in this context are the self-indulgent, selfish, adulterers, philandering husbands, sexually indulgent young men, sexually indulgent young women, wives who neglect both their husbands and their children in the home, drunkards, gluttons, liars, deceivers, irreverent people, faithless wives and mothers, greedy thieves, and insubordinate employees. He gave himself up for us. That's who the us is. Spotless, unstained, exalted above the heavens. He gave his back up for us. You see, it's one thing to believe in Jesus that he gave himself for others. It's quite another to say he gave himself for me. Paul says, you've never understood the gospel and you can say it's for us. It's for me. Paul's statement about Christ's substitutionary death is an invitation to you and to me to come into our, to find ourselves within this drama, this story of redemption that is freeing and enabling me to pursue godliness. Jesus' death was for us. Now look what he does. This new way of life, this new way of godliness is possible How is it possible to live a godly life in such an ungodly culture like Crete or our culture in Western America? Oh, it's fully possible. How? Look at the intended effect of Christ's substitutionary death. He gives you two effects right here in this passage. Look at it. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us. That's the effect. Number one. Two ideas lay behind this redemption theme. So that you've had the priestly offering theme, the sacrificial offering theme. Now you have the redemption theme that he's pulling from the Old Testament. And he gets this idea of redemption from two places. One, Roman slavery, the institution of Roman slavery. And two, from the Exodus event in the Old Testament. Let me just show you what Paul is thinking here so you can see the great effect that Christ's death has for us. In Paul's day... Uh, slaves were bought out of slavery and the term that was used to buy them out was called to redeem. And so by the payment of a ransom, slaves were redeemed from the bondage of the institution of first century Roman slavery and they were set free. And so like a first century Roman slave, Paul says Christ has redeemed us from all lawlessness. What is lawlessness in this passage? It's very simple. It means to be against the law. It means that you are breaking God's law, the requirements of righteousness. It is the opposite of righteousness. It is synonymous 
your translation might say iniquities or wickedness. Lawlessness is iniquity. It results in iniquity. Lawlessness. Breaking God's law. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. Lawless living. What does lawless living look like? It's verses 2 through 10 of chapter 2, which I just read for you a while ago. The us whom Jesus died for. That's what godless, lawless living looks like. And lawless living, when you break God's law, the Bible says you come under enslavement. You come under the death penalty, the curse of God's law. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That is slavery of the highest magnitude. That is bondage. And Paul says, Christ, by giving himself up for us as our priest and as our sacrifice, paid the necessary price to free us from God's death penalty, the curse of God's law, to free us from the controlling power of sin in our life. Thanks, John. That's a message called The Grace of God Purifies, Part 1. We'll conclude this series next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.